Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We're going to, uh, this morning, be actually looking at three different texts. Um, as we're continuing along in this uh, series where we've been kind of looking at some foundations of the faith, some kind of key questions, and over the last couple of weeks we've talked about the fact that uh, God's character is that He is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity, and that God demands of us that we be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. Uh, and thankfully, even though we fall far short of that, He gives that to us in Jesus. This week we want to ask the question, well, how do we know what God demands of us? How do we know that it's what He's demanding? And how do we know what holiness, love, and integrity actually look like? And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we know that? So we're going to look at three scriptures. They'll be up here on the screen. They're also in your booklet. As always, encourage you to bring a Bible and follow along. So um, the three scriptures are going to be Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, and James chapter 2, verse 12. And I'm using three of them because they all kind of bring out different aspects of this very clearly. So. So beginning with Romans chapter 2, hear now the word of your creator and your king. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, verse 11. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. And then James, chapter 2, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom one of the most important things uh, that we have to do is understand what is expected Uh, i remember when i was a a young plebe going to the naval academy the first day they gave us a, a number called our alpha code and told us to remember it but they weren't real clear that it was like really important that we remember it and then an hour or two later, we were expected to be filling it out, and I didn't have it written down, and I was like, I, I hope I've got this remembered, but I'm going to remember from now on, when this guy says do something, he really means do exactly that. And if you're a parent, you understand what it's like that you need to be very clear and explicit with children what the expectations are, or otherwise, if there's you know, wiggle room, they will find a way around. Probably not your children, but mine. We're certainly all that way. And if you go and get a new job, I mean, every time I change jobs, one of the first things I wanted to know is, well, what are you expecting of me? And is there a place I can find what is expected of me? Is this, is this written down somewhere so we all are on the same page? And without this, we don't have any idea of what is expected of us. We don't have any idea of how we're actually doing regarding what is expected of us and the same thing is true actually in our relationship with God so we've been talking about what God is like and what God demands of us 
but how do we know where that is? So if you look up here, I'm going to put up uh, the, the question we looked at last week in our, our catechism, our foundations of the faith, and then the one this week. Remember last week we said, well, what does God demand of you? God demands that I be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. And the next question is, well, what is God given to teach you his demand? And the answer is God has given us his law, which is a reflection of his character to teach us how to be perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. Now, this is important because, see, people argue, well, what do you mean by love? And so if we're saying you have to be loving, what does that mean? And is that open to interpretation? Well, the answer is God has revealed what it means in his law. So we're going to begin by looking at God's law. Now, the first way that God has made this law known is that God has written his law on the heart of every human being. If you are a human, God's law is written on your heart. Notice in Romans chapter 2, one of our passages here, Paul is kind of making an aside comment, and he points out, he says, look, Gentiles who don't even have the law they still tend to do the things that are in the law. And they do this because they are showing that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And so Paul says, even Gentiles who've never come into contact with Israel, they do not have the Mosaic law. They don't know anything about that. And yet they still understand what God expects of them because God's law is written on their heart. Every human being, by being human, has the law of God stamped onto their heart. Now the reason for this is because we are made in the image of God. And because God is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity, and His law is just a reflection of who He is, when we are made in His image, therefore His law is automatically impressed on us. If you want to put it this way, deep down in your DNA is the law of God. Every human instinctively knows what God demands of us because that demand is not arbitrary. It's simply a reflection of who God is. And so God's fingerprint, as it were, is on what he has made. If you've ever seen, I remember a few years ago, my, my mother is a a great potter. She actually can make some really incredible pottery. And we were up in Pennsylvania, and she looked at some pots, and without touching it, she said, those were made by the master potter from Marshall, Texas. I said, how would you know that? And she said, I can tell by the, by the way he made the pot, it's got his, his signature on it. Sure enough, we picked it up, bang, there it was. We were at Annapolis Pottery, a couple of years ago, and she looked at a glaze, and she said, I know who made this glaze, this particular name. And a person was walking up behind us and said, you're right, how did you know that? And my mom said, because I love his glazes. She could tell who it was. I, I love guitar music. If you listen to a great guitarist, I can pick them out playing in a song, even if they're not credited. It's like, I know who that is playing that guitar. Their signature is on the way they do that. Well, God's signature is stamped on every human being, who he is. He's molded us a certain way. Now, this is oftentimes referred to as what's known as natural law. 
that when you look around at creation, when you look uh, at a human being and our nature, uh, we have God's law stamped on us. And this has actually been found to be true across cultures and times. There have been very, very similar understandings of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, great work, The Abolition of Man, he was dealing with the fact that in our culture today, we were saying, he, he was already seeing this way back in the 1930s and early 1940s, Lewis said where our culture is heading is we're going to deny there is right and wrong. We're going to act as if those are completely subjective. And what Lewis was writing in, the, in this series of essays is that's not going to be the freedom of man. That's going to be the abolition of man. That's going to be the destruction of humanity. And in his appendix, he gave what he called the Tao. And he went and he showed, look, it doesn't matter if you go to ancient China or India or Judaism or Greece or some modern tribe or whatever else, you find basically the same laws over and over and over again. They have their version of the golden rule. They have their version of don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, because oddly enough, it's really hard to live together if we're going to be murdering and stealing and lying about one another. It doesn't make for good harmonious relations. So every society we find, they have these same laws stamped on them. They're just part of it, and it's because it's how God made us, and it's how reality exists. Now, that would seem to be good enough, but there is a problem with natural law, and that problem is sin. When sin enters in, we suddenly start finding ways to twist what God's law that's written on our nature seems to be saying to us. Paul had already dealt with this actually in Romans chapter 1, when Paul's going to begin laying out his gospel, before he gets to the good news, which is what the word gospel means, he begins with the bad news, which is what we're like. And in Romans 1, 18 to 20, he says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So Paul says, look, not only is the law of God stamped on your heart and your very being, it's also out there everywhere else in creation. And creation is speaking to us. So from within and without, we are hearing the law of God. But here's the problem. We suppress that. Notice he says, in our wickedness, we try to push it down. The picture is God's truth, God's law is bubbling up. It's like a pot that's bubbling up, but we're, we're doing everything we can to keep it tamped down. We don't want that truth to come out because when it comes out, it exposes my sin. And so sinful humans are at war with God's truth and God's law, and they work to suppress it. But notice what God says here. God's truth and demands are clear to every human, and we can deny, we, we distort, we suppress it so that we can go our own way. But nonetheless, it is clear to every human being. Now, you can see an example of this today in our culture. This kind of goes back to what Lewis was writing in The Abolition of Man, 
He was very prophetic because what he predicted in the late 1930s that didn't seem like it was there at the time, but he basically predicted where our culture has gone in saying there is no good, there is no uh, evil, that these things are completely subjective. If you think something's good, that's just a socially constructed thing that people have foisted upon you or it is your perception of what good and evil are, but there, there is no objective good and evil out there. That's what our culture is saying, but what God says is everybody knows that's foolishness. That's simply not true. Uh, the reality is good and evil are objective. They're revealed by God in all of creation and our very nature, and our society right now is working overtime to suppress this idea. Okay. Now, it's very hard to live with, and this is good news for us, actually, as you are engaging with people who may be questioning, is there a God, or they may state that there's not, or they may be stating that good is evil and evil is good. You can know, stamped into their very DNA, is the reality. No matter how much they try to deny that, it is there. And all around them, reality presses upon them and usually at certain times in ways big and small it will come out and be seen when c.s lewis went on and wrote mere christianity that was his beginning thing was you know well people say they don't believe in good and evil until somebody does something evil to them and then suddenly they believe in evil uh, our second son jeremy ended up deciding he wanted to be a philosophy major because he was taking a just an introduction to philosophy course at the community college and in the class all the kids were buying into Nietzsche and postmodern ethics and all this because it was telling them there is no right and wrong you're free to do what you want I mean what college student doesn't like that idea right except for there had been the shooting at Virginia Tech just a week or two previous and this was a couple of years after 9-11 and I remember Jeremy came home fired up and said, I'm going to be a philosophy major because this is all crazy. Because he said he looked at them all and said, so you're telling me it was morally neutral for that guy to get in a tower and start shooting students at Virginia Tech? That's a morally neutral act. And then suddenly it gets quiet. It's morally neutral to fly planes into the World Trade Center and kill thousands of people. That's because if there is no good and there is no evil... Well, see, at those kind of times, people start realizing, well, maybe there is good and evil. But the problem is, we naturally daily want to suppress this idea. So for this reason, God wrote his moral law down for us. So we have a clear place where it's written down, so to speak. It's not just in our memories, because then we start, you know, rewiring our brain, so to speak. So God's written it down and said, well, here it is. This is what Ezekiel 20, 11 is about. God is speaking to us, and he says, I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. And God is saying, because we distorted, denied, and suppressed the law written on our nature, God gives us his moral law in a written form. Now, Ezekiel is speaking primarily of the Ten Commandments. They are kind of the most heavily encapsulated form of the moral law. And in fact, if you, if you look at our catechism, our foundations of the faith, later on we actually go through the whole Ten Commandments as part of the moral law, describing to us as Christians how we 
ought to live, what the Holy Spirit is working in us to do. And I'll come back to why that is later. But when God brought his people out of Egypt and he redeemed them, he gave them this moral law and said, this is what you are called to do. And I want us to understand God's moral law is a gift of God's grace by which we can check our own desires and our conscience to know what God has demanded of us. Because see, the problem is, if you do evil long enough, what happens to my conscience? Yeah, see, we, we, we can shut our conscience off. I remember uh, reading a book on conscience and hearing an example that there was a pilot a number of years ago. He flew for a, I believe it was a South American Airlines, and they had flown into the side of a mountain. And they were questioning, how did this happen? Didn't the warning system go off? Well, it turned out when they recovered the black box, it had gone off, but the pilot believed it was malfunctioning. So all the warnings kept going, all the warnings kept going, and the last words out of the pilot's mouth were, shut up, gringo, as he tried to press the box off, and then he slammed into the mountain. Okay? See, you know what we do with our conscience? Shut up, gringo. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that what I'm doing is wrong. And so God in his grace has said, I know you want to do that, so I have a backup system, <laughs> which is going to be there, and it's going to be telling you you're about to fly into the side of a mountain. This is destructive for you. And so our response to the law, therefore, is supposed to be to obey. And let me say, this is really important for us because, see, here's where, again, we've got it backwards in our culture. I come to the law, well, let me put it this way. What would happen, do you think, if, if let's say, I got arrested for doing something terrible on the way home today, and I went in, and when they called me up before the judge, I said, I'm here to judge you. What do you think the judge's response to that would be? Yeah, see, that's not going to be a good trial for me. But friends, that's exactly what we do. See, the law of God is here to judge you and me. You are not judging it. Not to keep bringing up Lewis, but he wrote a whole other series of essays called God in the Dock. Because we've put God in and we're trying to accuse God. We're trying to say, you're going to stand trial before me. And that's what we want to do with God's law. That's not our place. God says, I gave you my decrees and laws, and you are to obey them. And if you obey them, you live. And the implicit warning is, if you don't obey them, you don't live. There is a warning there. Now, as we saw last week, thanks be to God, Jesus has obeyed them in our place. And I'll come back and talk about that a little bit more. But it's important to see, God has given us his law, and it is here to judge. Notice in, in James chapter 2, James is talking about God's law, and he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So notice what he says is, on judgment day, when God says, I demand perfect holiness, love, and integrity, I'm not going to get to say, I met it because here's how I define holiness, love, and integrity, which oddly enough is pretty much the way I am. See, God says, no, that, that's not the standard. The standard that has been given is my law. My law defines holiness, love, and integrity, and that is the standard by which you will be judged. And so James tells us, you better speak and act and live in light of that fact that you're going to be, 
judge not by your own opinions or my own opinions. We can kind of collude together and say, hey, I'll give cover for you if you give cover for me, and we'll come up with this the way we want this to work. God says, no, I have a standard. That standard has been published in all of creation, on your nature. I wrote it down, and you're going to be judged by that law. So it will not be human opinions or standards, but the perfect love of uh, perfect law of God, which is again is a reflection of God's character. Now let me say before we move on, and I want to talk about three different ways this law works among us, I do want to remind us when we're doing this, this is again not arbitrary. This is like that little, see that little black box and that plane was not being arbitrary. It was warning that pilot, you're about to slam into the side of a mountain you are about to kill yourself and everybody else on this plane. God's law, there was that little phrase at the end of James chapter 2 that says you're going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Boy, does that sound strange in our culture. We think freedom is freedom from, but it's not. It's freedom to. He who is a slave to sin is a slave. Only he who is free to be who he was made to be is actually free. You're only living in freedom when you are under and embracing the law of God because it's how you were made. And it's how I was made. And so any person who says, well, I'm not interested in what God's law says, what they're saying is, I'm not interested in freedom. I'm not interested in blessing. I'm not interested in life. I'm not interested in being warned that I'm about to slam into a mountain and create carnage in my life. If, if you feel that way, all I can do is pray that you're going to wake up because you're, you're looking for destruction in your own life. And that, that is a path we are on right now as a culture because we have so radically redefined freedom to think that freedom means there is no sense of restraint at all. But stepping off of a thousand-foot ledge is not freedom. It's death. And you'll find out you are subject to the law of gravity. No matter how much you say you don't believe in it, no matter how much you say it's not going to affect you, it is there, it does affect you, and you will not find freedom in that activity. Freedom is found in obeying the little sign that says, be careful, there's a cliff here, don't step forward, don't go to this point. Right? See, that's the way it works, and that's what God's law does for us. Now, in the scripture, there are three different ways that the law of God is used. And I want to, because we talked so much last week about what God demands and what he gives, I wanted to talk briefly about these three ways. Because it's important when you're reading the scripture, and it's important in some of our current cultural conversations. The first way is God's moral law restrains evil in society. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders, 
and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Now, what he's saying here is, see, I don't really need a law to tell me don't go into this store and steal from it because I don't really want to steal. But, but we do need laws saying you can't steal because there are people who do want to steal. So Paul says the law's there for people who, who are bent in this inclination and they're wanting to do evil. And most of these, if you look, you can trace them back to the Ten Commandments once again. He's kind of running through it. You know, the, the, they, they kill, and specifically fathers and mothers, that's the Fifth and Sixth Commandment. Adulterers is the Seventh Commandment. Perverts is the Seventh Commandment. Slave traders is actually the Eighth Commandment. They're stealing, and in this case, they're stealing human beings. Liars is the Ninth Commandment, and so is perjurers. Paul's just gone through five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is the laws there. And what this means is we need a law to restrain human evil because we foolishly made the deal with the devil. We've unleashed sin in our hearts, and we think we'll keep it restrained, but we can't. And so God, as a blessing, has given his law to help restrain us, and that's what it's there for in civil society. Now, let me be clear. Does the law change the human heart? See, if there's a sign that says don't steal, and if you do steal, you're going to get prosecuted to the full extent of the law, that doesn't make a thief not be a thief. It may prevent him from thievery right at the moment, but it doesn't change the heart at all. But it's still a blessing if you own a store to have somebody not stealing the items out of your store. And so the law does that. It serves to restrain the effects of sin, which enables us to live together and build community. You can't build community if everybody is stealing and murdering and lying. You, you cannot build a community. It's one of the reasons we're increasingly having problems. And so any society that encourages dishonoring parents and authorities, that encourages violence, sexual sin, stealing, lying, and greed is a society that's sowing the seeds of its own destruction. That might be an oh my moment as you consider our culture right now. But if you are sowing these seeds, they eventually do grow up and produce fruit. And any society that says, you don't need to honor your parents, you don't need to honor authorities, you don't need to honor people that have gone before, you, you, can, you can do violence, you can, you can sin however you want sexually, whatever, as long as it's two consenting adults, you can live off of greed. You, you need to want more and more. A society that does this is a society that is heading off of a cliff. And they do not survive over time. That's why, as I said, everywhere we go, societies that have survived have recognized and embraced these kinds of laws. And societies that don't, don't last very long. They soon cave in on themselves. So that's the first use of God's law is just kind of out there in society. A second use of God's law in the scripture is God's moral law convicts us of sin and points us to Christ. This is what we really looked at last week, but I'll go through it again. Paul, in Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 3, as he's laying out the law and the gospel, points this out. In Romans 3, 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. See, the purpose of the law is to get us to stop talking. 
and to let us know you are going to be held accountable. Then verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous. That word is justified. No one's going to be get the gavel down and be declared innocent uh, in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. As I pointed out last week, the law has a purpose. It shows me the disease with which I'm struck. It does nothing to heal my disease. It will not cure my disease. But it's very helpful to know what disease I have. And the law shows me that, that I am unrighteous. Galatians 3 makes the same point. He says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith or that we might be declared righteous by faith. Same word. That word there to the laws put in charge, if you've ever heard people talk about education and use the word pedagogy or a pedagogue, meaning a person who kind of instructs, it deals with education, that comes from the Greek word here, put in charge. What the person literally did was they took the child and they got them to the teacher. They were to make sure that the child was dressed, had their books, all their materials, was prepared and ready for the lesson, and they got there on time. That was what the pedagogos did. That was their job in culture. And Paul says that's the law. It's not doing the instructing. It's not accomplishing what needs to be done, but it's getting you ready for that. And that's what God's law does. It makes me despair of my own righteousness. So when Christ comes along, I say, oh, this is what I need. He is the one that has fulfilled the law for me. So even if my conscience is seared, the law can break through and open my eyes to my sin. It can reveal to me what's going on. And it does this work so it can lead us to Christ. And I want to remind you again of what I said last week. God's standard and demand is perfection. Okay? Because by its very nature, if something is perfect and you introduce a little imperfection, that's not a little problem. Perfection is destroyed. Perfection cannot have any imperfection. And so the problem we have is God's law is here demanding perfection before God. Not that we did our best, not that God will grade on the curve, not that, you know, well, you were better than most people, perfection. And as we all agreed last week, who's even remotely close to that? I mean, who's even perfect today? Who's even perfect just in their outward actions, much less their inward thoughts and desires and so there is no hope through the law the second use of the law is not given to save us it's given to point us to jesus christ who can save us because there is one who was perfect who did obey every day every night every moment in every word thought deed and desire he obeyed and this righteousness is then given to us it's not just that jesus took your sin away if he did that friend you're back in the garden and i got news for you you and i will fail again we need somebody who's going to positively give us the righteousness that is required and that is what christ has done and so we have to be clear the law is important because it does show me my sin but it does not save 
And if I can step aside for a second and be, and be pastor, this is why we have got to be known not as law people, but gospel people. You and I are here to proclaim the gospel, the good news. Now, this is challenging because we live in a society that's denying law all around us. But many Christians are therefore wanting to become people of the law, but that's not where our hope lies. The law shows us our problem. We proclaim Christ. That's what we're after. We're proclaiming who he is and what he's done. We are people who focus on the good news. And we let the bad news do its thing so that people are ready for the good news. We want that to be there, but we are always turning to the gospel. And please hear me, if many of us, because we live in such a mobile society, you're going to move on, and I'm always concerned when you move on. Do not go to a church that is a law church. Do not go to a place where every week what you hear is 10 things you've got to do this week to make Jesus like you. That, that, that's death to your soul. You and I need to hear the gospel. I am accepted, not because I'm better than my next door neighbor. I'm oftentimes not. Not because I'm an elder or a pastor or I stand up here and preach the word. You can do that and be far, far from God. My hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is more than enough, and it is given to me good days and bad. That's our hope. So the second use of the law is very, very important, but we must not stop there. It reveals our sin. Now, I will tell you, sometimes you may be praying for a friend or parent. You may be praying for a child, and the law is in the middle of doing its work. And when it is, we don't want to rush in and stop that. Let the law do its work. It's a good thing. When, when I went in 18 months ago because my left shoulder was hurting, and the doctor listened to a few questions and then said, you need to go down and get an MRI done. And then the MRI came back and said, don't even come back here. You need to go see this specialist. Now, on one hand, that's not what I wanted to hear. But on the other hand, it was good news because now I could find out what needed to happen to rectify my problem. And so when the law is at work and somebody you love, let it work. Let it do its job. But be there to point out and say, oh, I know the one can fix this problem. I got good news, and the good news is not me. I'm just a heap of bad news. But there is good news. The good news is Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we do. Now, there is a third use for the law, which is God's moral law guides we who are Christians into true holiness, love, and integrity. A Christian is someone who has been justified by faith alone apart from works. But that faith always wants to obey the law. The second we are born again, we're, we're like a little child who's born and is ready to eat. We are ready to obey God. That's what happens. We have a new nature. So when we became, when we became Christians, I'm going to step you through something here really quickly. When we became Christians, God's law was written on our minds and on our hearts. In the book of Hebrews, he puts it this way. This is the covenant. He's speaking of the new covenant, quoting from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on my hearts. I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. That was always God's design. That's the covenant motto. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. But he's saying, look, in the old covenant, you always fell because the law was outside of you. It was calling to you and you could never obey. So here's what I'm going to do. First thing, when you are born again, I'm going to write the law on your heart. It'll no longer be outside, and it's not going to be the defaced copy that was inside. It's going to be a clear, fresh, written copy on your heart. Second thing God promises in the New Covenant uh, is in Ezekiel 36, 27. God says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Not only is God's law now written inside me, but the Holy Spirit resides in me so that I am moved to obey the law of God. Friend, you have covenant privileges that Moses and David could only dream of. And that is true for every believer in Jesus Christ. The law is now on your heart. Your heart is saying, I want to do this, but I'm still struggling. And then the Holy Spirit says, don't worry, I am here. And I will empower you to obey and do what you could never do. In Romans chapter 8, where Paul told us there's no condemnation, notice what he moves on in verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. See, our sin nature always short circuits the law. He says, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So both in our justification, you have fully met the righteous demands of God's law. But now as you are living by the Spirit, He is working that out in your sanctification. And He is making it where we are increasingly obedient to God's law. That is the privilege of every single Christian. So notice here, the law doesn't even give the power to obey. But it does tell you, because see, we've still got this. How do I know what the Holy Spirit's trying to do? He's trying to make me conform to Christ. How do I know what that looks like? The answer is God's law is still there telling me. So when I'm saying, you know what? I think being like Christ right now would be if I would swipe that thing and stick it in my pocket. No, it's not. That's not God's law. That's not God's will because that violates God's law. When I think, you know, I, I shared one time and I taught on this in the past, I had someone who told me, I think that the Lord wants me to commit adultery with this other person. They actually told me that. They, they, and they were, they were struggling, and then they had a dream, and they said, the dream revealed to me, no, I in fact was not supposed to. And I said, I don't care whether you had a dream or not. God had already revealed that in his law. You don't need a dream. You don't need anything else. You do what the law of God says, and that's what God's calling us as Christians to do. So how do we apply this? brief thing and then we'll come to the lord's table the first question the the primary question for us is do i look to god's law to define holiness love and integrity god stamped this on your nature and mine but friend you've got the same problem everybody else has i want to distort god's law because i want to do what i want to do and so do you and if you don't think that, wait until next time temptation runs strong and listen to your own voice inside you. And you find that we're amazed what we will justify. So God has given his law. And our cultural concepts, you know, 
culture is supposed to be basing its law on the law of God, but our cultural concepts of right and wrong shift like the shadows. And again, people even deny that right and wrong exist. So for this reason, God gives us His law. Because remember, so you go back to the garden. What, what was the temptation? What was the serpent trying to get Adam and Eve to do? Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because see, then you'll be like God. See, then you're going to get to define good and evil for yourself. That was our very first temptation. And what are we trying to do today? Define good and evil for myself. That's what I want to do. And so God says, no, the standard is my law. So the question in answering this, is God's law defining holiness and love and integrity for me, or is the culture? If you sit down and you were to find, to define those words, is your definition lining up with the word of God? or what our culture says. Because I tell you, again, many things that our culture says this is love, the Scripture would call hate. And things that actually our culture says are hate, Scripture would say is love, just to use that one. So which is defining it for me? And let me say as well, just real briefly, I won't dwell on this, but is God's law defining holiness, love, and integrity for me, or is Christian culture? Okay. Uh, I'm going to start meddling here a little bit, but, but you can hear a lot of stuff in Christian culture that has nothing to do with what actually, for example, holiness is. We can come up with all kinds of definitions that aren't even in the Scripture while we're ignoring things that actually are in the Scripture. What defines holiness, love, and integrity for you and me? Don't let the world, also don't let Christian culture, let God's law define it for you and me. And what that means is you remember, I always go back to this, am I meditating on it? Joshua was told, meditate on my law day and night. The blessed man in Psalm chapter 1 meditates on the the law of God day and night. Because friend, 24-7 the culture, and if you're just, I don't even listen to secular radio. All I do is listen to Christian radio. Well, guess what? They're also trying to shape you in their own vision. Am I letting God's law shape my thoughts? Second question, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Is the law doing its work in my life? This is kind of that second and third use of the law that I talked about. Is the law doing its work? Well, here are some questions I can ask to tell me. Do I try to redefine what Scripture calls sin so I can justify myself before God? And I can answer that question. Every one of us, the answer to that is sometimes yes. We do. But is that my, is that my pattern Have I seen my sin and been silenced before God? If you're here, I don't don't take it that just because you're here, you are a believer. Friend, if you are here and you're trying to justify yourself before God, that is a fool's errand. You, you, You will never, ever do so. But the sad thing is, I tell you, the majority of Americans I've ever talked to, whenever I sit down, you know, and 
Uh, if you and I died and I stood before God, you know, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What should I say? Always, always, always tell him you kept the Ten Commandments. Tell him you were a pastor. Tell him you taught the Bible. See, that reveals what's going on in our heart. I'm justifying myself. I've got an answer. Then the law hasn't done its work because I don't have an answer except for Jesus Christ. That's my only, my only hope is he's going to jump in an answer for me. Say, that one's mine. As a Christian, am I letting God's law inform my lifestyle? Is God's law regularly convicting me of continuing sin in my life? See, the good news is you and I are free from the penalty of sin. That is done once and for all. It's not here today and gone tomorrow, and I better be having a good day when I die or else I'm in trouble. No. When you are God's, you are God's. But, see, the law wants to set us free because sin is destructive. And it deceives me as a believer. And it leads me back into bondage. It leads me back into slavery. It robs me of what God is trying to give me. It takes away my freedom and my joy. And am I letting the law of God convict me of that? Because, friend, you have a sin problem, and so do I. Even as a believer, I am not a Christian because I'm better than somebody else. Now, is the Holy Spirit changing me? Yes, just this past week, my wife told me and one of my besetting sins she told me how much better i've gotten during 35 years of marriage she's seen the fruit of the holy spirit's work we won't go into what that sin was but if you've been around here for more than like 35 minutes you probably know but she's seen the evidence of god changing me but i want you to know that's not my hope my hope is jesus but i am glad he's setting me free from that because i don't want to be that guy I don't want to be that. I want the Holy Spirit to set me free. But what I need to do is I need the law of God to show me and say, because I come up with every justification. See, God wanted me to holler at the kids. He wanted me to behave that way. And I'm telling you, all you get when you get a seminary degree like I've got is more Bible verses you can twist to try and justify it. I can make anything sound good. Talk around, well, if you could read the Greek and the Hebrew... You'd still see it was sin, but I'm going to still spin it around. That's what we do, friends. Every one of us do that. Is the law of God convicting me of my sin? Is it showing me where the Spirit's working to conform me to the image of Christ? Because it's not just that. The Spirit wants to make me what I'm not. He wants to make me like Jesus. Do, do I see that where the law is showing me so that I can be loving like Jesus is loving? I can speak the truth in love. I can walk in holiness. Is it doing that for me? And am I drawing upon the Spirit's power, which is going to lead us down to the table, so that I can do this? Because the law will not do it, but the Spirit does do it. So we're going to come to the table because the Holy Spirit meets us here at the table. And I want to encourage you to do three things at the table today. Number one, come and confess your sins. Just our sin in general that we have no right to the table. But if the Lord is bringing something to your mind, it may be from the past, it may be from the present, confess that. And know, hear the gospel. You will not hear, well, you've confessed that before. This is one time too many. 
you will not hear that sin is too great. You will hear you are forgiven. Come and confess your sin. Come and receive forgiveness. Man, forgiveness is so freeing. Receive true, full forgiveness. And thirdly, come and receive strength from the Holy Spirit. This is the amazing thing about the Christian life. This is bread and, in our case, juice. The Holy Spirit could choose to work any way he wants. But God does like material things. And so when you and I eat and drink in a few minutes, if you reach out in faith, the Holy Spirit will empower you. He will rise up within you and say, I'm working to conform you to Jesus. It's an amazing thing. If we don't look to him, then this can be juice and crackers. But that's because we're not coming properly. We're not looking to him to do that. Oh, he wants to meet you here at his table. If you're here as a visitor, I want to let you know you do not have to be a member of our congregation. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you understand all the things I've been talking about. If you're not a believer, then we would encourage you to just let it pass because in a couple moments we're going to be praying a thing that says in taking this bread and in taking this juice, I am confessing I am a sinner and that Jesus lived and died for me and has kept the law for me and he is my only hope. That's what eating and drinking is a profession of. If you believe that, please eat and drink with us. If you don't, let it pass and then talk to me afterwards because I would love to talk to you about what it means to walk with Christ. And also we've got uh, gluten-free if you need that, you can raise your hand in a couple moments and we'll take it together. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that we come to this table this morning by grace. We come to this table because Jesus has kept the law in our place and invites us would you send your Holy Spirit to meet us, to feed us, to draw us to yourself? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get the elements, hold on to them, and we'll take them together. Father, your law has revealed your character and your call for us once and forever. This law was built into our nature and woven throughout creation so that everyone is without excuse in denying or disobeying your righteous law. For your law is holy and your commandments are holy, righteous, and good. And though we disobeyed your law, we give you thanks that Jesus obeyed in our place. And he gives us righteousness to we who have faith in him. So in taking this bread, we profess your law is perfect.
Your son has fully obeyed it in our place, and we trust him alone for salvation. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you have secured our salvation once and for all. By your blood, you have cleansed us of every sin so that we are now spotless and pure, fully justified before the throne of God. For this, we bow before you and give you thanks. And we lift up the cup of blessing, receiving your grace and mercy fresh and anew through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of holiness, the spirit of truth, and the spirit through whom the love of God is poured out in our hearts. In regeneration, you wrote the law of God on our hearts, and you dwell within us to empower us to resist sin and embrace righteousness. Because of this work, we are sons and daughters of the living God. As your sons and daughters, we cry out with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. So we ask you, open our eyes to behold the truth. Open our hearts to believe your word. Renew our minds to think like you. And renew our wills to love what you love and to hate every evil way. Come upon us in power this week, Holy Spirit, so that we might grow in holiness, love, and integrity, thus fulfilling your call, bringing delight to our God and freedom and joy to ourselves. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand together. And I encourage you to receive the blessing of God from the benediction in the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Go in the peace and blessing of the Lord. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.